Good morning. I'm excited to be back with y'all this morning um, once again, and it's for a couple reasons. The first is that the text today is really fun and really messy, and who doesn't love a good, complicated Bible story, right? The second, and probably more personally, is that it's February. And February is Baptist Women in Ministries Month of Preaching. Now, this is the tradition that I just came out of, um, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and organization that's near and dear to my heart because every year during this month they ask churches to intentionally invite women into the pulpit to preach and we aren't a Baptist church it's purely coincidence that I'm preaching here in February but I've always wanted to participate in this month of preaching and have never been asked so I want to say thank you as a church for 365 days a year supporting women and their voices and their calls to ministry. It's incredible to think that we are raising young women um, over in our youth group and over in the children's ministry who one day they may hear a call to ministry and it won't be a complete shock that that could happen. Yeah? Yeah. So I do not take this for granted every time I get the opportunity to preach. Now, as some of you may know, I went to seminary with our youth minister, Corey Miller. And I'm going to pick on him for a minute. I don't think he's here, so I'll try not to throw him too far under the bus. But Corey and our fellow classmates had a little joke about me at the end of our time in seminary. One day they came up to me and they said, Rachel, congratulations, you are the most improved player of our class. And I thought, what? (laughs) Was I really that bad to begin with? (laughs) Most improved, what on earth? And I was a little offended at first. But when I really stopped and stepped back and realized that they were just teasing me because they love me, I realized that what they had hit on was something very true. I had come out of seminary a changed person. They had seen the journey that those three years had taken me on, and they recognized all that God had done in my life, and that was their affectionate way of saying, we see you. When I started seminary, I didn't believe God could call women to preach. Primarily because that was the dominant teaching I'd heard most of my life at that point. Not from my parents, mind you. They're great. I didn't believe there was a place for me in the church. And I certainly had no intention of ever working for one. Joke's on me, of course, because we're on number two here at Middletown. Love it. We're not going to get into the patchwork theology that I brought to seminary formed from three different denominations that had influenced me growing up. But needless to say, I came into seminary with all these beliefs about God and the Bible and what it means to be a Christian, and I was starting to have some questions, maybe even some doubts. So I decided to keep an open mind for those three years and really lean into those questions and see what God could do. 
I knew there was a lot I didn't know, but honestly, I didn't know what I didn't know. And what better place to learn? Seminary felt a lot like standing in front of an open fire hydrant most days. All this new information, new ideas thrown at me almost faster than I could absorb them. It was exciting, but it was also pretty stressful. I thought I had a good handle on things before I went to seminary. The Bible, for example. I'd been reading it for most of my life at that point, and I thought I understood it for the most part. But then the first day of my introduction to the Old Testament class, the professor kept casually referencing the two creation stories. The two creation stories, the two creation stories. And I looked around and thought, what is this guy talking about? And I, you know, casually, you know, looked over my shoulder, kind of seeing how my other classmates were taking this in, and none of them seemed phased. Seemed like a normal day for them. And I felt really stupid (laughs) because I realized in that moment I'd been reading this book my whole life, but I really didn't know as much about it as I thought. And if I'd missed something as simple as Genesis 1 and 2 being different stories, then what else had I missed? What else did I not know? Have you ever been there? See some heads nodding. Have you ever had an experience that upended everything you thought you knew about God or made you wonder if you were missing something? Have you ever looked at the faith and beliefs you grew up with and realized that maybe you don't believe everything that your parents or the church or your pastor taught you growing up anymore? Maybe they were wrong about some things. Maybe it happened when you left home for the first time and went to college, and you were introduced to all these new people and new ideas that encouraged you to open your mind and see the world in a different way. Or maybe it was the first time you traveled, and you realized that the world was so much bigger than that little corner you grew up in. Or maybe it was during a crisis, When you started to question, does God even exist? If this is happening, does God even exist? Or maybe it's just this thing that's been itching and nagging away, a restlessness in the back of your mind every time you had a conversation about faith. Moments like these can be unsettling and nerve-wracking and scary. Asking questions about why we believe what we believe is hard. But I'd like to suggest that this morning, asking questions, having doubts, doesn't make us bad Christians. It makes us better Christians. Last week, we started a series called Snapshots of Jesus. And this week, our snapshot is of Jesus as teacher. One of the names for Jesus used throughout the New Testament is rabbi, the Hebrew word for teacher. Jesus was Jewish, and so he taught from that perspective. And it's important to remember that he has great love for that tradition. 
Because when we see him challenging the ideals and the traditions and the beliefs and customs, he's doing it out of love, not because he wants to scrap Judaism altogether. And we'll see him challenging some beliefs today, so it's important to remember that it's all out of love. In today's scripture, Jesus returns to his hometown in the synagogue. He's been traveling around Galilee, teaching, healing, doing miracles, but he returns back to Nazareth, his hometown, to really begin his ministry officially, to preach his first sermon. And it sounds really exciting, right? But spoiler alert, it doesn't go so well for him. Let's see what happens, starting in Luke 4, verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. Everyone was raving about Jesus. So impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, Undoubtedly you will quote this saying to me, Doctor, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. He said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the cloud and went on his way. Whew. That's a lot. I think it's safe to say that things escalated pretty quickly in our story. But how and why? Why did it start with people so excited about what Jesus was saying and end with them throwing him off a cliff? 
well, trying to. He got away. The day starts like any other Sabbath. Jesus makes his way to the synagogue for the service. When it's his turn, he stands and reads from Isaiah, one of the prophets, from way back in the day. And he makes this exciting declaration about who he is and what God has called him to do. Jesus is here to declare freedom for the poor, the oppressed, the hurting. Jesus is here to bring healing. And Jesus is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this last one was especially exciting. The year of the Lord's favor was also known as the Jubilee year, which you can read about if you ever find yourself in Leviticus. The idea is that every 50 years, Israel would celebrate this Jubilee year. During this Jubilee year, debts were canceled, slaves were freed, lands were returned to their original owners. It served as kind of a giant reset for society. And of course, we don't know if the Jubilee year ever actually took place in ancient Israel, but the people listening in the synagogue that day, they would have understood what this meant. They would have been excited about the possibility of it actually coming true. The prospect of the Jubilee year was even more exciting for Israel because they were a conquered people and they were living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Before that, it was the Babylonians and the Assyrians and needless to say, they were ready for some liberation and they were excited about this message of hope that Jesus was bringing. So they start talking among themselves, of course, and getting excited because, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, the carpenter's boy, the one who used to run wild through the streets with his friends? Yeah, that one. He's one of ours. And this is where things take a weird, confusing, sharp turn. Jesus interrupts this excitement, this hubbub, and he essentially says, you're going to reject me. People always reject the prophets. So I'm not even going to bother to do here in my hometown what I've been doing everywhere else. Oh, and hey, remember Elijah and Elisha, those prophets that Israel rejected before and they went to someone else? Yeah, you're going to do the same thing. Again, it's just going to keep happening. Obviously, this is a sore spot. And the people get angry and chase Jesus out of town to a cliff. Without context, Jesus honestly comes off as unnecessarily harsh and even provocative in this passage. But the fundamental disagreement here is that Jesus interprets the Isaiah scripture one way and the people interpret it another way. And they can't agree and they won't listen to each other. Sound familiar? That's never happened before. One possible explanation for the disagreement that they were having is that the people do believe Jesus when he says that he's here to bring this message of liberation, that he's anointed by God. And they assume that because they're Jesus' hometown, 
because they're the ones who raised him, they're now insiders on the fast track to favor with God, and they'll get special treatment when this year of jubilee happens. But Jesus recognizes their motivations, and he calls them out for it. He uses the example of Elisha and Elijah not to say that Israel will be excluded from God's promises, but to say that God's promises and blessings are for everyone, not just Israel. When Jesus calls them out for this assumption of special treatment, they get upset. Now remember, these are good people. They are pious Jews who show up every Sabbath to the synagogue. They were faithful in observing the rituals and traditions of their faith. They are good people with good hearts who love the Lord. But even good people get it wrong sometimes, right? So of course they get offended when Jesus pushes back on their beliefs and even on their true motivations. And instead of listening to Jesus and considering what he's saying, they become defensive and choose hostility. Again, sound familiar? Our natural human response to having our beliefs and motivations challenged is to get defensive and maybe even angry. And we dig our heels in, plant our flags. If you don't believe me, think about how many times churches have split at some point during their life cycle over an argument of how to interpret scripture and people stop listening to each other. When we hear something that calls us out or that's different from what we've been taught, we get uncomfortable and offended and we don't actually wrestle with what we're hearing. We're tempted to just push it aside, dismiss it as being wrong and not worth our time. What would happen though if instead of being dismissive and angry and defensive, we stopped and asked ourselves why this bothers us, why we're getting offended by a new idea. Sometimes it's warranted because things are wrong and things are offensive. But most of the time, I think what happens is that we recognize that something is true and it scares us because we know that if we accept that truth, we might have to reconstruct our entire worldviews and belief systems. We have to change. And sometimes we have to admit that we were wrong. So back to my time in seminary. During those three years, I learned so many things about God and about the Bible and about church that I had never heard before. Some of it was pretty easy to accept because I'd had questions and doubts coming in. But other parts of it, parts that were deeply personal, those were the hard parts. Those were the times when my beliefs were challenged and I just wanted to run kicking and screaming back to the safety of certainty. 
instead of living in this limbo of not knowing anymore. That included the whole women in ministry thing. I heard a woman preach for the first time my first month in seminary. I'd been invited to a church by a friend in the area who'd recommended it, and when I got there, I realized the senior pastor was a woman. That's <gasps> where you gasp. <laughs> and while I was surprised, I was also curious, because here was a chance for me to see if all those things they'd told me about those crazy women preachers growing up were true. But lo and behold, she preached one of the best sermons I had ever heard up to that point in my life. And I walked out of that church that day thinking, how could anybody deny that this woman has been called by God? And then I started to wonder if maybe all those things I'd learned about women in ministry growing up were wrong. And then, of course, I panicked. Because I knew if churches and denominations had split over this belief, there was a good chance that I, one person, could get kicked out for admitting that maybe God was actually calling me into ministry. And then, of course, what about my friends who didn't believe women could be ministers? Would they end our friendship if they knew? I mean, that may sound dramatic, but it was a real possibility. I'd like to tell you that finally accepting my call to ministry was easy, no bumps in the road, but I wrestled with it for a long time. It meant realizing that the denomination that I loved and that had raised me didn't want me anymore and might never want me. It meant losing friendships that I really cared about, and that was so hard. But on the flip side, accepting my call to ministry was incredibly freeing because for the first time, I could finally be who God had called me to be without any guilt or reservation. If I'd never asked the question, if nobody had ever said, hey, this thing you believe, do you think it could be the other way around? If nobody had ever pushed back, would I be right here today? I don't know. So I'm thankful because I changed my mind about a lot in seminary, not just women in ministry. And I'm thankful for every friend, every pastor, every professor who pushed back on me, who made me go deeper and ask the hard questions, who made me account for what I believe and why I believe it. Because in the end, I've learned that even though asking questions of what we believe is really difficult sometimes, it is always worth it. Always. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he has come so that we may have life and we may have it to the full. As a teacher, Jesus was constantly challenging popularly held beliefs and ways of life. 
He wanted people to ask questions. He wanted people to expand their understanding of the world and of who God is. Because Jesus understood that God is far bigger than we can possibly comprehend. And he knew that we miss out when we limit God to a set of beliefs and doctrines that leave no room for questions or surprises. When we never question what it means to be a Christian, we end up using the gospel to exclude and oppress people rather than to include and liberate them, which is what Jesus says from the beginning is the point of his ministry. Asking questions opens our eyes to those things we believe just because someone told us they were true and not because Jesus actually taught them. Asking questions is an invitation to that full, abundant life with Christ. The good news of Christ is too good for us to sit back and never question why it is good. The love of Christ is too big for us to never question why we set limits on that love. We don't have to be afraid of changing our minds if the questions we ask lead us to different answers than we've always had. When we start to ask questions, we are opening ourselves up to God and to the possibility that God might want to do something new in our lives and in our communities and in our churches. We may discover callings we never considered before. When we ask God to expand our hearts and our minds, we are stepping right into that full life that Jesus wants to give us. So the invitation for us today is to think about those things that are bugging you, those questions you have, those things you're not quite sure about, and why you're not asking them why you're avoiding them, or why your hands just get clenched into fists when you hear someone start to answer them in a way that's different from what you've always known. Instead of reacting with defensiveness and anger and running people off of cliffs, please don't do that. <laughs> Lean into the opportunity to see things differently to hear God speak in a new way. There's a perfect opportunity for you to do this in community, for us to do this together as a church. In a few weeks' time, we're starting a series called Spiritual Crises. You may remember a few weeks ago, we sent out a survey asking you to share what your biggest questions about faith and God and the Bible were. And for five weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to lean into those questions as a church on Sunday mornings and in small groups. And we're going to ask the tough questions. And we're going to do it together so it's not as scary. Because when we do things together, when we ask questions together, we realize that, oh, hey, I'm not the only one who thought that or had questions about that. And it's always less scary to tackle something together than alone. 
So I hope that if you don't want to have an existential crisis alone, you will join us. <laughs>